Amen. Would you let me pray for us? Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your word. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As you heard Tim read the scripture just now, you may be wondering, why on earth are we hearing this scripture from Isaiah? Shouldn't we be hearing about the birth of the baby Jesus? The answer is, well, yes and no. The season of Advent, the four Sundays before Christmas, have an interesting history in the life of the Christian church. The word Advent comes from the Latin adventus, meaning coming or arrival. And so in these four Sundays, we await the coming, the birth of the Christ child. Historically, there were actually two ways of Jesus coming to us. One that happened, and one that is still expected, Jesus' birth and Christ's return. In recent years, in our lifetime, Advent has taken on the cultural frenzy of the Christmas season, has mostly emphasized the watching and waiting for the birth of the baby Jesus with happy anticipation as would happen at any joyous birth. The candles in the wreath signify the themes of hope and peace, joy and love. All good thoughts and joyous feelings. And with each passing week, as more candles are lit, we in the northern hemisphere, in which December becomes the long dark nights, wait in anticipation of Jesus' birth. There is, as I alluded earlier, an older tradition in Advent. The four weeks lift up theological themes related to endings and death and judgment, heaven and hell, which seem odd at a birth announcement, don't you think? As such, Advent was a penitential season, a time of fasting, a time of confessing, a time of seeking to become more intentional about our spiritual life. In other words, Advent became a little Lent. In this view of Advent emerged that emerged in the Middle Ages, it reached the height of its spiritual popularity during, and not unsurprisingly, the Great Black Death. Consequently, it might be good for us to consider the medieval focus of Advent given our own pandemic. Into these dueling views of Advent comes the words of the prophet Isaiah. Now, I want to say uh, that you probably recognize some of the words of the scripture. And it probably, in fact, made you think a little bit about Christmas. And there's a reason for that. Next to the 23rd Psalm, the passage we heard from Isaiah might be among the most familiar in all of the Hebrew and New Testament scriptures. And why? 
Well, you can credit George Friedrich Handel, who wrote The Messiah and has forever etched into our collective memory these words, ensuring that not even non-churchgoers can quote and sing along with these words. But before we race ahead to the scripture that we hear read today, words of comfort and the peaceful image of God as a shepherd carrying us as God's sheep, we need to think about the 39 chapters of Isaiah that precede chapter 40. Now, don't be scared here. I'm not going to go through each of the 39 chapters, and I know you'll be glad for that. But consider this. Biblical scholars considered the chapters that preceded the one we heard today to have been written in the 8th century and identify them as Isaiah 1, or 1st Isaiah. The chapters include a prophetic assault lambasting the people of Israel for any number of appalling sins, centered mainly around their complete refusal to care for the poor, the widow, the stranger, the foreigner, and the orphan. Professor of preaching in Hebrew, retired from Perkins School of Theology, Dr. John Holbert writes this, Reading 8th century Isaiah is to take a bath in religious condemnation from, prophet, from pro prophetic people who knew that Yahweh was furious with the chosen ones for their continual and unfailing inabilities to follow the divine will and way. Only then do we hear the words of Isaiah chapter 40. Scholars tell us in this passage we are hearing a different writer, a 6th century Isaiah. The opening words of this prophet, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, can only be a loud, ringing balm to the people who have suffered the unrelenting scorn of the previous chapter's prophetic voices. For Christians, the words are as familiar as many of our New Testament scriptures announcing the coming of the child Jesus and setting that coming forever as a final and complete peace. And as I think of it this morning, we're not unlike those Israelites, are we? Often our evangelical sisters and brothers have lifted up our own country as a chosen nation, a chosen people. More often than not, we too have failed to care for the poor, the widow, the stranger, the foreigner, and the orphan, the anavim. The anavim, the anavim is a Hebrew word meaning those who are bowed down. In the Old Testament, they were poor of every sort the vulnerable, the marginalized, those who are struggling socioeconomically, the oppressed, those of lowly status without any earthly power. They depended totally on God for whatever they owned. The poor ones, which is what they are often called, actually remained faithful to God in times of difficulty. And this is why the anavim, the poor ones, 
those bowed down are precious to God because of their faithfulness. And now it almost seems that we are all joining the ranks of the bowed down by this pandemic, aren't we? In speaking to my class on congregational leadership at Bright Divinity School, Reverend Cameron Trimble, my friend and colleague, shared that she calls what we are in right now the great unveiling. She explained, or rather reminded us, that all that we are experiencing now, the economic crisis, the political divide turned into hating our neighbors, the global climate crisis, the, the rise in hate groups, the problems of racism and violence against black folk and other people of color were already present before this pandemic even started. So this pandemic, she says, has unveiled for us to see. Scales have fallen from our eyes as we observe all of these problems that we are currently experiencing. And so we find ourselves crying, weeping, calling out to God, why God? Why us? Why now? What is happening? And if we're honest, we think to ourselves, I thought we were a chosen people, that we were somehow special. Oh, well, I probably should confess here that that's really probably what white people tend to think. And now our cries have turned to weeping as we watch how many of our people locally, nationally, and globally are dying or have died from this disease as we watch how many people are struggling financially, as we watch how many of our own people, and aren't they all our own people, who are hungry and don't have enough money to put food in front of their children. We, the richest country in the world, have children who go to sleep each night hungry, is it any wonder that the prophetic assault, lambasting of Israel for any number of appalling sins seems meant for us? Well, I would like you for a moment right now to lay aside all of that for a moment and attempt to hear the words as the weary Israelite exiles would hear them. The words we hear this morning may well speak a more potent language to our 21st century lives. Now more than ever, as we long for comfort in this ocean of fear and terror, consider that we are very like those 6th century Israelites who were exiled to Babylon. And this is where the scripture we hear this morning arises. Consider that we are in fact exiles in our own way. We are exiled from our home and our peace. Because if you think about it, God is our home. God who calls us to love our neighbor, to care for the poor, to serve the bow down, the to serve the poor ones. All that was and is the call of Judaism long before it was the call for us as Christians. And yet, through our, 
our sisters and brothers, our relatives of Judaism. We claim that now, that God is our home, and we are called to serve, serve the poor ones. Our peace can be found in that call and the presence of that God, our God. Not in our government, not in our stock portfolios, not in our sheltered lives. And we are probably in exile more ways than we can count. So we have an enormous need for God's comfort. The one who can actually offer us true comfort. Instead of the blast of divine anger and frustration and demand we hear from some preachers, and if we're honest, our own self-doubt, we actually if listening, we'll hear a call from God, a call of comfort even in the midst of all we are going through right now. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And then as we come to the end of the reading, we get this image of life with God, of our home in God, a shepherd feeding us, a shepherd gathering us, a shepherd holding us, a shepherd leading us home. Hold that image in your mind for a minute, will you? See if your heartbeat doesn't slow, your thoughts quit racing, your breathing deepen, your sense of peace restored. The truth is, today, as with the exiled Israelites. We live between two worlds. And so on many levels, we live between a pull and a push, a press and a calling. But at the heart of our life, we live between two worlds that rest on an overarching division. Biblical scholars Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan explain our dilemma best in their book, The First Christians. They refer to the way of the world and the way of God as the imperial kingdom and the eschatological kingdom. Eschatological meaning the, the, the theology, the God talk of final things. They describe the difference and the tension between these two as, as follows. The imperial kingdom of Rome and this may indeed apply to any other empire as well, Perens, think the United States of America, had as its program peace through victory. The eschatological kingdom of God has as its program peace through justice. Both intend peace, one by violence, the other by nonviolence, and still those tectonic plates grind against each other. And I just have to think that we who are lost from our heart's home have to decide which world are we going to inhabit? Where are we going to place our loyalties and our faithfulness? One world will bring peace only through violence and one world will bring peace only through justice. Justice, that word that means when all have 
enough when all are equal. One world will bring fear. The other world will bring peace. Again, referring to my friend Cameron Trimble, she shared a story this week in her devotional from the autobiography of the great psychotherapist Carl Jung. Jung described a conversation he had with a Native American chief named Mountain Lake, whom he regarded as a kindred spirit. He wrote, I was able to talk to him as I have rarely been able to talk to a European. Perhaps because of their mutual respect, Mountain Lake gave Jung a very frank assessment of the way his people saw Europeans. Mountain Lake said, their eyes have a staring expression. They are always seeking something. What are they seeking? The whites always want something. They are always uneasy and restless. We do not know what they want. We, we do not understand them. We think they are all mad. Jung asked Chief Mountain Lake to elaborate. Why exactly did white people seem so insane to Native Americans? Mountain Lake responded, they say they think with their heads. Why, of course, said Jung. What do you think with? We think here, Chief Mountain Lake said, as he pointed to his heart. This is key to our peace. Thinking from our hearts, the place where God speaks to us, the place that God inhabits in us. We are all taught at a young age that our knowledge comes through reading and writing and arithmetic and exercises our heads. We value external results. We have invested countless years, dollars, and talent exploring the outer world, the imperial kingdom, if you will. This has kept us busy doing, but it has not always deepened our experience of being and has certainly not granted us our hoped-for peace. We who are lost from our heart's home continue to believe that God's grace, God's love, God's peace is not real, and certainly not for me. I mean, why do so many sermons end with, now go do something? It is because we do not trust the power of God's grace, the power of God's love, the power of God's vision of a loving world to lure us to be the people God has called us to be. So I just have to ask, is this not the very theme of Advent? God comforts us in order that we may at long last become what God wants us to be. God's children, God's agents in the world empowered by a love that will not let us go. Thinking with our hearts rather than our heads. And so on the second Sunday of Advent, the Sunday we light the candle of peace, let your cries rise to God. Let your tears be poured out before God. And then think with your heart and hear the God of your longing speak the words you most want to hear. I love you. I forgive you. Be comforted. 
welcome home. Then, then, rest in God's peace. Amen.